6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Isaiah, chapter 10, verse 5 through chapter 12. He has come to Ai. He has passed to Migron. Okay, Migron, that's the Gibeah of Benjamin, 1 Samuel 14. That's about... Um, uh, all that's about 30 miles north or so. At Mishmash, he has stored his baggage. Mishmash is seven and a half miles north of Jerusalem. See, these places are progressively closer. You follow me? You see, he's speaking geographically. He's dropping these names. And yes, you can look up and concordance stuff, chase this down. Uh, Mishmash uh, is where Jonathan was against the Philistines. It's a very, very, diff- for those of you with military uh, backgrounds, uh, you probably know it's a very difficult place to attack. 1 Samuel 14 is a place to dig into that if you want to. Verse 29, Geba or Geba is uh, about uh, six miles northwest. And uh, the passage it refers to 1 Samuel 13. Ramah is about six miles north of Jerusalem. The Gibeah of Saul is about four miles north of Jerusalem. And then in, uh, in verse 30, uh, Galam is the birthplace of the second husband of Michael, for whatever that's worth, Saul's daughter, if you recall. Uh, Laish is, um, again, uh, north of Jerusalem. Anathoth is, the, is a city of refuge, if you recall from Joshua chapter 21. But it's also Jeremiah's birthplace. But the main point here, it's about three miles north, see? Then we have uh, Madnia and Gabim, which are about one to two miles north. Gabim, which are about one to two miles north. And uh, they're cisterns north of Jerusalem. Now we get to Nob. Nob is inside of Jerusalem. It's what we call today Mount Scopus. It was uh, a priestly city uh, destroyed by Saul in 1 Samuel 22. But the main point here in the spirit of this, this passage is it's inside. In other words, what Isaiah is saying... Let me paraphrase this, you see. Verse 28 says, he's 30 miles north of Jerusalem. No, no, he's seven and a half. No, no, he's six, four miles, then three, then one to two. Now he's within sight. Film at 11. And he shall remain, verse 32, he shall remain at Nob that day, and he shall shake his hand against the mount of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. Behold the Lord God, the Lord of hosts, shall lop the bow with terror, and the high winds of stature shall be hewn down, and the haughty shall be humbled, and he shall be cut down. He shall cut down the thickets of the forest with iron, and Lebanon shall fall by a mighty one. So they're going to attack, they're going to threaten Jerusalem, but God interferes. Because who conquered Jerusalem? Not the Assyrians. Babylon will a hundred years later. And the northern kingdom fell in 722 B.C. The southern kingdom, Judah, Jerusalem, fell to Nebuchadnezzar, the successor to the Syrians, in 606 B.C., essentially, to give you a rough flavor of it. So that's probably as much damage as we can do to chapter 10 for one evening. It's a, a basically a, a chronicle of the judgments uh, both by and then on Assyria. Now we get to chapter 11. What makes Isaiah so much fun is, yes, he has these heavy-duty passages, and yet he, he sprinkles it. With little surprises. And chapter 11 is one of those sprinkles. He changes, he shifts gears here, changes the subject. Verse 1, and there shall come forth a rod, or uh, can rephrase that, a twig. 
Out of the stem of Jesse and a branch shall grow out of his roots. This is, in a sense, it's speaking in in, uh, tree terms, but it's speaking of a family tree, you see. Out of the stem of Jesse. What came out of Jesse? Jesse was the father of whom? David, you betcha. And a branch shall grow forth out of his roots. Even though it's cut down, there's going to be a branch, a twig, a, a sprout. Now what you miss here is the, uh, is the word branch, by the way. The branch of Jeremiah in chapter 23 and 33 is a king. The branch of Zechariah, chapter 3 and chapter 6, is a man. The branch here in Isaiah is a nutzer. And there's a pun, a Hebrew pun involved, because a netzer is a Nazarene. So Jesus Christ is the branch of Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. But he's also a Nazarene. And if you, in the Hebrew, is, there's a, a play on words. Follow me? Because obviously he was a Nazarene. He grew up in Nazareth. But more importantly, in a sense, he was a netzer of, of uh, uh, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. Now he is a, he's also spoke, one of his many titles of Jesus Christ is the root of David. You find that in Romans 15, 12. You find it in Revelation 22, verse 16. I personally uh, suggest we take a look at Revelation 5, just to pick one of these several references. Oh, on the way to Revelation, let's stop off at Matthew 2. (laughs) That's nothing else that'll sell more tabs at the bookstore. At the last verse of Matthew 2, Matthew says he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. And those prophets, plural, he shall be called a Nazarene. And this refers to Isaiah chapter 11. Because as, as a, a, a rod or a netzer out of the stem of Jesse. Matthew here, if you track this down... Is, on a, is, is dealing, in effect, with a pun, right? By the way, while we're here, I can't resist this because I keep running into this kind of thing. You know, I get, uh, I get all kinds of people. I get these guys on the radio asking questions and stuff and trying to stir up trouble. And, it, well, you're quoting things out of context. Well, if you're making doctrine, that's a very valid, important issue. But at the same time, don't blind yourself. I'd like you to, while we're in Matthew 2, look at verse 15. Remember when, uh, as an infant, Joseph and Mary took Jesus down to Egypt, right? And verse 15 says, And they were there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which is spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I have called my son. And what he's quoting from is Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, where it says that, but there's no way you can read Hosea verse 1 of chapter 11 and call that messianic, but for the inside of Matthew. So one of the insights, I think, is that we get from the Scripture is to notice how the prophets speak of it. All prophets take Scripture literally. Okay. Secondly, it's also interesting that hidden away in some of these, quote, contexts are second or third level meanings. And that's obviously what Matthew is leaning on in Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. And that's sort of what he's doing in verse 23 when he speaks of Jesus Christ as a netzer. As a Nazarene, there's a pun involved. The Holy Spirit deals in puns and similitudes and models. And if I made a list of rhetorical devices that you'll find in the Scripture that the Holy Spirit uses, there are over 50 different rhetorical technicalities in the Scripture, for what it's worth. But we're not students of rhetoric. We're students of Jesus Christ. We were on our way to Revelation 5, I believe. 
very, very key passage. Revelation chapter 5, I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written within and on the backside, sealed with seven seals. Jeremiah 32 and the book of Ruth reveal what that scroll really is. It's a title deed. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice who is worthy to open the scroll and loose its seals. And no man has to be a kinsman of Adam. No man in heaven nor on earth, neither under the earth. That's interesting dichotomy of the universe. No man in heaven or on earth is a third place under the earth. We're able to open the scroll and need to look upon it. And John says, I sobbed convulsively because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither look upon it. Because John, under, you and I may miss the point. John didn't. He understood the significance for the redemption of all creation. Not, no one was eligible. But there's one exception, fortunately. Verse 5, And one of the elders said unto me, Weep not. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. The Lion of the tribe of Judah. I love that. The lion was the ensign of the tribe of Judah. The, that was the ensign for not just Judah, but the, the, the three tribes that camped to the east of the tabernacle. The camp of Judah. The tabernacle surrounded by the lion, the ox, the man, and the eagle. The four, four symbols, the four faces of the cherubim, interestingly enough. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the title of Jesus Christ. I love it when someone says, gee, what sign are you? I say, I was born in May, I'm a Leo. They look at me, what? If you're born in May, you must be a Gemini. No, no, I'm a Leo. How can you be a Leo born in, in, in May? And that opens, that's it. they just step right into it, you see. They step right into it. Well, I'm a Leo because I'm, you know, I'm under the line of the tribe of Judah. That's, a, that's what it really was. That was long before Babylon. That's what it really all about. The 12, the 12 constellations are signs of the 12 tribes. And I'm a Leo because, you know, you're not Jewish, are you? Yes. No, I'm not. But the God I worship is. That's also a good stopper. That causes humor. <laughs> the Lion of the tribe of Judah. That's one title. Here's the other title. The Root of David. The Root of David. See, it comes out of Isaiah again. It's one of the titles of Jesus Christ. It's a root. Yes, it's an idiomatic of a tree, but it's a family tree. It's a gene genealogical tree. He hath prevailed to open the scroll and loose the seals. And I love this. You see, you start, John turns... Expecting to see what? A lion? No, he's speaking idiomatically. He turned, he said, and, and, and I beheld, lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lion? No, no, no. A lamb as it had been slain. The lamb as it had been slain, my friends. What does that mean? Yes, it's the lamb, the Passover lamb. Remember John the Baptist introduces Jesus Christ publicly. Behold, the lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. What a Jewish title. That's not a Gentile title. That's a Jewish title. The Gentile, what's Passover? You know, Passover, the Lamb. That's the title. And here he is, the Lamb. But wait a minute, as it had been slain. Did Jesus Christ bear the marks of his crucifixion after he was raised from the dead? You betcha. Thomas, handle me and see, right? So he still bears those marks. Wait a minute, gang. He was so badly disfigured that nobody recognized him after his resurrection at first. Even John closed his gospel when they were there at the seashore. None of us dared ask him, for we knew it was him. What, John? Why did he put that remark in there? They ripped off his beard. He said, Isaiah will deal with this. We'll get into some of the aspects that he still bears for you and I throughout eternity. 
But we're getting ahead of the story. Isaiah will deal with that when we get to chapter 50 and whatever. We're still back here in 11, as I recall. More or less. Give or take a few. Well, we get to verse 1. Let's move on to verse 2. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. Interesting verse for you, Revelation friends. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the spirit and the and of the fear of the Lord. Well, now that's kind of interesting. Let's turn to Revelation chapter one. I should have had you put a finger here to save your tabs here a little bit. Revelation chapter one, verse four. It's like a memo. John two, you know, from two, you know how a corporate memo works, right? John, that's from. Two, who? Seven churches, which are in Asia. Grace be unto you, and peace. And it comes from three people. The grace and peace comes from three people. From him who, who is and was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the first begotten of the dead, and uh, the ruler of the kings of the earth. Well, we're used to seeing the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. No problem there. The third one, and Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the first... By the way, in the first chapter, 24 titles, this is the data division for you programmers, in the first chapter of Revelation, 24 titles are introduced, and there are labels all through the rest of the book. It's an identity. It's a data dictionary, or whatever terms you want to use. I don't know if you're COBOL or what kind of programmers you are. So Jesus Christ, we have those titles, the faithful witness, no problem, the first begotten of the dead. That's not, means he's begotten, it's a, it's a positional thing. And the ruler of the kings of the earth, no problem there. No problem with the first one, from him who is and who was and who is to come. You know, the self-existent one, the the voice of the morning burst, no problem there, the father. Huh? But wait a minute, who's this middle guy? We have for him who is and who was and is to come, no problem. And from the seven spirits... Who are before his throne. Who is that? The Holy Spirit. You betcha. But it's an Old Testament idiom for the Holy Spirit. You generally don't find that in Paul's epistles. So if you don't find it in Paul's epistles, most of us find it a little strange. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not knocking really mastering the epistles. I'm just saying part of our fumbling or stumbling or what have you in the book of Revelation is our ignorance of the Old Testament. 357 direct quotes of the Old Testament in the book of Revelation. Very, very, a very, very Jewish book in a sense. Well, the seven spirits which are before his throne. What is seven? The number of completeness. Seven, by the way, is not the number of holy. A lot of people misunderstand that. Go to Las Vegas. There's sevens there, too. That's not holy. (laughs) Seven is, idiomatically, in the scripture, the number of completeness. Satan has seven heads, ten horns. You follow me? So seven isn't necessarily holy. It's complete. The seven spirits are the complete spirit, the sevenfold spirit. The seven letters of seven churches. Those aren't the most important seven churches. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. You pick seven churches in, in, the, in the ancient world, you wouldn't come up with those seven. Where's the church of Jerusalem? Where's the church of Antioch? Laconium, Derby. You can mention all kinds of churches that were important. Church of Rome. Why those seven? Because those seven turn out to represent all churches. The complete church, idiomatically speaking. And Jesus maps all of church history chronologically and all of church, all churches spiritually in the sevenfold dimensions of those seven churches. So the seven is complete. It's the complete church in a sense. Where is Jesus Christ? In the midst of them. And yet where are they in his hand? Interesting study in, in, in Revelation. Jesus is always with his church. Remember that when you start getting to post-trib 
check verses. That's nonsense. Verse 2, the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Now, most of us would read this, you see, as, as, as this, that's the generic, and then these other six are subdivisions. I'm not going to badger that. The point is there's the Spirit of the Lord, whatever that means, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. There's seven spirits there. What's interesting to me is there's one and then three pairs. When I mentally walk into the tabernacle on the left side, what do I see? The menorah. Right? All gold, solid gold, speaking of Christ's deity. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. The only light in the tabernacle was the menorah. So it identifies Jesus Christ. He further said something else. I am the vine, ye are the branches. What's the number of man? Six. Put he and the six together, you get seven, you got the menorah. I am the vine, ye are the branches. What are the branches? Three pairs. I'm fascinated that I just see behind this. I don't mean to sound like a mystic. I guess I am. Verse 2. The Spirit of the Lord, the singular, shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, that's a pair. A Spirit of counsel and might, that's a pair. And the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, that's a pair. There's something else that you catch here if you've really done your homework. The Spirit of counsel and might. That's kind of interesting. The temple that Solomon built had something the tabernacle didn't. We study the tabernacle as the mod, the basic architectural model for the temple, and that's fine. It certainly is, and yet there's something added in the temple that was not in the tabernacle. It's called the porch. And what characterized the porch? Two gigantic pillars. What were the pillars made of? Bronze or brass? You bet. What did they hold up? Nothing. What were their names? Yachin and Boaz, counsel and might. Really? Now, turns out that if you study the architecture of the temple you'll discover it will parallel a number of different things, among which are the seven spirits of God. And that starts to give us a whole new insight when in, in the New Testament seven times, the Holy Spirit tells you, you are the temple of God. What does that mean? And secondly, there's another thing the temple had in, in Jerusalem that the tabernacle did not. It had storerooms surrounding the building, but accessible from the outside, not the inside, were storerooms. That's where the priests were supposed to keep their implements, but that's also where they hid their idols and their private things, hoping no one would notice that. And if you study that carefully, you discover that's analogous to our subconscious. Well, we're Christians, so you have some fleshly feeling. What do you do? You stuff it down. You hide it. You put on that nice facade, right? And you stuff it. Where are you putting it? In the storerooms. Does that make it go away? No, it creates some problems, doesn't it? Fills the psychiatric billings, right? God will deal with that, and uh, and He does. And but the, the guide is not Freud or some other writer, or L. Ron Hubbard or anybody else. <laughs> is is the Holy Scripture, the owner's manual? But that's a whole other study. If you're interested in that, I do. I think I've done this before, but I unabashedly will tell you that the best materials I've ever seen are the ones that my wife has spent 12 years researching in the way of agape and also be transformed. Two tape series that she gives for women's seminars that has just changed lives all over the world because she's taken the architecture of the temple with great insight, practically, in terms of what that means in terms of Christian walk. You notice I use my wife as an example, not me. You know me well enough to know that I'm no example. We'll move on. Verse 3, quickly. <laughs> and shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness shall he judge the poor, and reprove the with equity 
for the meek of the earth, and he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall he slay the wicked. Wow, we could spend the whole evening on that verse. With righteousness he shall judge the poor. Boy, don't we wish we could judge with righteousness. You know why we can't? You know, if you're, I don't know if there's any lawyers here, but we speak glibly of a court of equity, but there is no such thing. There are, of course, criminal laws, and they have punishments for crimes. That's straightforward. But there's also civil injury and penalties and what have you. And wouldn't we love to right those wrongs in equity? We can't. Equity doesn't really exist in the legal sense. Why? Because we don't know the thoughts of the heart. We can't infer that. The closest we come in practical terms are what's called money damages. But that's often a far cry from the real injuries. When someone's negligence has lost somebody else's use of limbs or eyesight or whatever, money damages is a poor uh, remedy no matter what the numbers are. And there's a real dilemma in law is real equity. Why can't we do it? For lots of reasons. By the way, you know that uh, the Bible says that only God knows the thoughts and intents of the heart. How many knew that? How many of you know why that's in the Bible? It's to keep the personnel department out of the act. So I just thought I would throw that out. Okay. Not many of you in large corporations, I can tell that. Okay. In righteousness he shall judge the poor and reprove with equity. Only God can. For the meek of the earth, he shall smite the earth with a rod of his mouth. You know, it's interesting how often that phrase occurs in the Scripture. I encourage you sometime to take a concordance and just track it down, the rod of his mouth. How often does it occur in the Scripture? And it's interesting that that is all through the Scripture. Revelation chapter 1, verse 16. In the interest of time, we won't go back to chapter 1 again. 2 Thessalonians 2, 8 and elsewhere. What destroys the Antichrist? The brightness of his coming and the rod of his mouth. What comes out of his mouth? A two-edged sword. I'm always amused by these Renaissance painters and stuff that try to, or Clarence Larkin, where they would try to sketch Jesus Christ with a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. That isn't intended to be a graphical idiom. It's an idiom from the Scripture. It's a conceptual idiom, not a visual idiom. The rod of his mouth, the two-edged sword is what? The Word of God, you betcha. Two-edged sword comes out of uh, Hebrews 4.12, but again, and also Revelation 1.16. It's interesting how these idioms are consistently used. You see it in the Psalms. You see it in Isaiah. You see it in Revelation 1. You see it in Paul's letter, 2 Thessalonians 2, 8, and so forth. What's fascinating to me about that, don't miss the obvious that you've got one author. The guy that wrote the Psalms, the guy that wrote Revelation, the guy that wrote uh, 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 the Thessalonians. Yes, there were different penmen who really engineered the text. The Holy Spirit. And I don't mean just conceptually. I mean the use of language, the use of phrase. And of course it goes even much deeper than that. With the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. It's interesting, I'm thinking, always thinking of the Garden of Gethsemane. How Peter draws his sword. He's going to defend the Lord, right? The Lord just smiles. He could have had legions of angels. One angel slaughtered 185,000 Syrians after dinner one night. You don't mess with angels, Right? And Christ can call legions at his disposal. He's like, Here's Peter drawing a sword, right? What does Jesus do? He heals the servant that had his ear cut off, right? Why? To save Peter's life. What would have been the aftermath of that? Peter would have been arrested and so forth. So, yes, it was probably... I'm not saying he didn't have compassion for the servant, but he's, the, the compassion he had was on Peter. 
But anyway, I'm getting off the subject again. That's happened to me once before. Verse 5, And the righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins, and the faithfulness the girdle of his waist. Now verse 6 on, it really reaches out on the horizon because it's millennial. Verse 6 on refers to the curse that's lifted. Genesis chapter 3, Adam falls, right? And God pronounces a curse, right? Verse 6 on, many commentators try to spiritualize it, and you don't need to. Take it for what it says. Verse 6, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the kid, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And a little child shall lead them. Do you want to spiritualize that? Allegorize it? Don't need to. It makes sense as it is. It just means that, hey, something's changed. What's changed? The curse is gone. What curse? The curse of sin. The curse that God had established in response to Adam's fall. And the curse goes far beyond just man. It's the universe. Isaiah will say, and Revelation will echo, Behold, I see a new heavens and a new earth. What's being redeemed? More than you and I. The earth. Heaven too. Satan had access to that. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the kid, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and the little child shall lead them, and the cow and the bear shall feed, and the young one shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. It would really be humorous if it wasn't so pathetic if you read how some of the commentators try to twist this around to make some kind of allegorical model. Hey, it's, it, it, it's sliced so many ways to make it clear. It's just very simple. It's the curse lifted. Genesis 3.15, right? Up and enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. When did the seed of the serpent bruise the heel of the seed of the woman? Calvary. Hmm? When did the seed of the woman crush the head of the seed of the serpent? In effect, at Calvary. You crush his head, what are you crushing? His skull. Where was the cross? Interesting. Idiomatic, symbolic, don't misunderstand me, and yet determinative. The battle is determined. The, the outcome of the battle is determined. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Isaiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.